Well, today uh, we commemorate the Anglican Church in North America that just commemorates uh, World Mission Sunday. World Mission Sunday. It's a very fitting for us to commemorate World Mission Sunday during Epiphany because one of the themes that I appreciate, especially in Epiphany, is the revelation of the gospel to the Gentiles. So one theme is the revelation of Jesus as baptism, but uh, Epiphany is also the revelation of the gospel to the Gentiles. I like that theme uh, in part because uh, we don't often think of ourselves as Gentiles, and that's another sermon, uh, although I'll allude to that a little bit. But that's one of the reasons why World Mission Sunday falls here. Um, and you can see these themes reflected in our lectionary readings, which were wonderfully chosen and start in uh, the covenant with Abraham. Now, we Anglicans have a long and rich tradition of participating in the movement of the gospel out from Jerusalem. Christians reached the British Isles during the Roman period, and from there the, uh, the Celtic and Roman missionaries evangelized the Anglo-Saxons, and then we have missionaries sent out from Britain to evangelize the, uh, the German people in the Middle Ages, and then after the Reformation, the growing British Empire just accelerated uh, Anglican missionary work around uh, the world. In fact, the organization that Beck and I served in Jerusalem, CMJ, the Church's Ministry Among Jewish People, was started at that time uh, um, in the late 1700s and uh, continues as a vital ministry today, and we pray for that in our prayers to the people. Um, today, uh, and, and this is most electrifying to me, indigenous leaders around the global south are not only reaching their own communities uh, better, but our brothers and sisters there are returning the favor to help us with our own renewal movement and our own evangelism efforts here in the west and the north. I mean, one way to think about it is for the first time since the time of Jesus, Christianity is now a non-western faith numerically. Um, we have hardly begun to experience the impact of that. Uh, but pay attention. Um, the, the money is here, the power and earthly senses may be here, but the numerical growth, the evangelistic fervor, the charismatic passion is in the South. And, uh, and as Anglicans, we have a, a special connection to that because it was the Global South leadership that helped us get started here. Uh, very exciting, and I can talk just all about that, actually. But I'd like to back up a minute and ask a very uh, a kind of St. John's-y question. You know, my son uh, is finishing up at St. John's, so this strikes me as an appropriate question. What is world mission? Now, um, that actually is a very important question, in part inspired by some of the things I was just talking about. What is the world? Um, now, we may just think, well, it's, of course, it's the planet, like it's everywhere. Uh, however, when all Jesus followers at the very beginning were only Jewish, and when Jerusalem was still the anchor of their world, world meant Gentiles. The world meant the non-Jews. The world meant that which was outside of Jerusalem, the holy city. However, demographics shifted in the church. The categories of Jew and Gentile kind of receded, and the world then came to mean pagan people that worshipped other gods. Of course, then it moved on eventually to just 
those who don't believe in any God at all. And the geographical center of gravity shifted from Jerusalem to Rome or Byzantium or to nowhere in particular. So now when you and I think of the world, probably the last thing we think of is Jerusalem. And the last thing we think of are Jews and Gentiles. But to the early believers, that's all they thought about. So when we're talking about world mission, what is world mission? Well, that's a good question. What is the world from a biblical standpoint? What is mission? How do we define mission? Well, Jesus describes it here in our gospel reading as Trinitarian baptism, making disciples, and teaching of obedience grounded in his authority. Shortly before his ascension, Jesus tells his disciples that they would be witnesses. Witnesses where? In Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? There's that geographical location again. Emphasizing in particular that spatial dimension. And we tend to generalize that today. How many sermons have I, well, I heard sermons anyway talking about our Judea is the neighborhood around us. Well, no. Our Judea, our Judea is over in Jerusalem. Our neighborhood around us is a long way away from there. But again, you can see how we generalize that. In the centuries to follow Jesus, mission would, be, would come to develop other dimensions, such as education or healthcare, or more recently, social justice. How many times have you heard people going on a mission and that meant to go build a house? Uh, and those are all good things, I'm not being critical of that. Some equate mission with religious conversion, others with economic empowerment, or in other traditions, monasticism. Monasticism had a huge impact on global missions and still does in certain traditions. So you can see that the idea of mission is big and diverse. What is world mission? And therefore, we ask ourselves, what is our role? What are we supposed to be commemorating today? Um, there's the question of our role in this. Are we all missionaries or are only some of us missionaries? I grew up in a tradition where missionaries were, that was what you did as a job. Is missionary activity local or foreign or both? Is the world over there or is it just wherever we are? So I hope I got your wheels spinning a little bit. Um, uh, this is all exciting stuff. By the way, I stir the pot only because I, 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 I want us to eventually find ourselves in the pot. You know, eventually this is to illuminate where we are, this to stimulate our own kind of thinking about our own engagement in world mission. So what in the world is world mission? Uh, you can get a doctorate in the subject, and the themes would, uh, that we could address are, are engaging and challenging, but they can also be paralyzing, and we do not want to be paralyzed. That's not the point of any of this. In fact, I, I think it was this, this is attributed to D.L. Moody, um, but I remember D.L. You know, Moody uh, was a, he, he was one of the early developers of the Sunday School movement in this country, started in Chicago, uh, Moody Bible Institute and uh, Moody Radio, I grew up in that purview. They were almost part of my family, it feels like. And D.L. Moody uh, was an uneducated man. And uh, he was uh, speaking about uh, his, he was uh, conducting mission work in England and some, some kind of uh, educated British person was criticizing him for his method. And D.L. Moody was uh, uh, apparently said, well, I like the way that I'm doing it to the way that you're not doing it. <laughs> and uh, he was... He was pragmatic in that, <laughs> that sense. <laughs> Just do it. We don't want to be paralyzed here. However, we do want to be informed of or inspired by uh, the vision of, of world mission. And I've, I want us to look to John as a helpful guide 
because John's kind of pulling back the curtain on the subject of world mission. So we'll be reading from Revelation uh, uh, chapter 7. And the reading, uh, our reading today picks up in verse 9, but I'd like to start a little earlier. Uh, chapter 7 itself is kind of an interlude between the opening of the sixth and seventh seals uh, that addresses what appear to be two groups of people. Now, Revelation uh, is, I, I've been reading it a long time, and I still feel like I'm just getting started. I, I love it, and, and I'm excited by it, and I'm afraid of it, and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, but basically, Revelation is, is kind of peering into, you know, kind of behind the curtain on what's really going on in uh, the establishment of God's authority in the world. And, uh, one, and there are a lot of symbols to kind of describe this. One of the symbols is the opening of a scroll. So Jesus is identified as the one who can open the scroll. And, and that's one way of looking at reading Revelation. This scroll depicts the transformation of this fallen world into the new world. And on this scroll are seven seals. Okay, you know, like a wax seal that closes it. You know, you can see that sometimes on images of scrolls, they have kind of like a wax seal on it. And there are seven seals. And these seals uh, are, are uh, metaphors for judgment of certain sorts. So when these seals open, things happen. Okay, that's the point. So Jesus has this scroll with the, the kind of content of, of the vision. And, and when these uh, seals are, are, are broken for the opening of the scroll, judgment goes forth of some sort. And, and uh, here we have in chapter 7 a, a kind of description of, of the impact of the opening of these seals on these two groups of people. I think they're two groups of people. And if you're a wonkish sort, you'll know if you've done any reading that some people feel like this is the same group. I just acknowledge that. And, uh, and there's some reasons for that. However, I take a different perspective. I think that these are describing two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, kind of as described here. Okay. So um, uh, we're in chapter 7, we're taking a pause to look at how God treats these two groups of people, these Tribe of Israel, all right, uh, the 144,000 sealed on the forehead as a, a symbol of being protected from the wrath that is going to come through the judgment of the opening of the sixth seal. And then we have this group of martyrs from all the tribes of the world that we, uh, that we read in our text this morning, uh, starting in verse 9. So as we warm up into this vision, let's just remind ourselves that the revelation of John is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says it very clearly in chapter 1, verse 1. This is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not about the revelation of Antichrist. It's not the revelation of the millennium. It's not the relation of the seals and the harps and the bowls and all the other things. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you ever get lost in it, remember that. This is about the establishment of Jesus. He is the shining light that illuminates John's vision. He's uh, the constant reference point. Jesus is the one who stands in contrast to all the opposition of all other false kingdoms, whether Egypt or Babylon or Rome or all the, you know, satanic powers symbolized in those dominant earthly empires. 
God's throne, where Jesus now dwells, sits atop all of them, and his hosts outnumber his rivals. By orders of magnitude, it's almost hard to even compare. That's what John wants the readers to know, that regardless of the tension they face, on top of everything, is an angelic host led by the Lord of hosts. Now, John unfolds what we know is a covenantal narrative. What I mean by that is what's found in our readings this morning. The covenant starts with Abraham, or Abram at this point in our <laughs> text. All right, And what, we, what John sees is the culmination of that covenantal promise that we read about to Abraham. From Abram, God will make a great and blessed nation. Part one. Through which all the nations of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Part two. This is the unfolding narrative of our earthly history. That's what's going on. It's the unfolding narrative of our earthly history against which the enemies of God are pitched. The enemies of God want no nation of Israel. They want no blessing to come from it. And their opposition, and in I should say in their opposition, they experience the curse part of the covenant, not the blessing part. Now, uh, this tension between God's particular promise and Satan's threats to undo it, as Luther has it in his hymn, is what the world experiences to some degree or another everywhere. It's the conflict. The tension is expressed in all versions of sin, whether through our own willful resistance or through the painful endurance of sin's fruits in warfare, poverty, fear, loneliness, and ultimately, death. That's the conflict. All along, we see the triumph of God's reign over the opposition. We see it as almost a paradigm in the Old Testament through the exodus of Israel from Egypt. But we see it again in their exile and return from Babylon. And most significantly, of course, we see it in Jesus' victory over the grave. Jesus' ministry is the vindication of the covenant promise. He now sits with God and is worthy to open the scroll of judgment and its fulfillment. And this is the story that John is telling. You know, he's, he's kind of re-envisioning the biblical narrative. Okay, chapter 7, Jews and Gentiles. We see these covenantal terms, Jews and Gentiles, just like we read in Abraham's promise, we see these covenantal terms emphasized in chapter 7. I hear echoes of Paul in here. Paul says in Romans 1, uh, uh, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the same pattern of the promise to Abraham. This is that, and That's what we're seeing here. So the 12 tribes of Israel... A representative number, it's 144,000, the complete number of Israel. They're sealed as protection against God's imminent wrath, which is unfolding here in the sixth seal. 
So that's the first thing we see. And then thereafter, John sees the great multitude of martyrs from all nations standing with the angels before the Lamb. Now, they're not protected from wrath. They're, they've come through the other side of it. They're now there in the presence of God, in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus praising him for his salvation and for his triumphant authority. Interestingly, we are not told of the origins of this great multitude. This is an interesting question to me on celebrating World Mission Sunday. We don't know how they got there. We are not told how they were, are reached. We're not told how they're formed. We're not told how they came to believe. But we can see from the first verse of chapter 7 that the momentum for their salvation is built on God's initiative. After this, John says he sees the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. This is God's movement. This is very important. I want to keep emphasizing it. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The world mission initiative begins with God. So you can see uh, that uh, the angels are holding back. And so in verse 10, the hymn of praise that the martyrs sing celebrates whom? God, to whom salvation belongs. He's the saving one. And the martyrs from among all the peoples are called and gathered by his initiative. World mission begins with God. It's his mission. It's the fulfillment of his covenant promise to Abram through his own self-giving atonement and victory over death as the basis of renewing all things. It's God's program. It's always been a new world mission. A mission of this world becoming that world under the stewardship of God's providence. It's the story. So, world mission does not start with the church. World mission starts long before it with God. And it continues with God. It's sustained by God and it ends in God. This vision of God's throne, then, as the source of life and authority emphasizes this. John loves talking about God's throne. And I, I just want to spend a moment talking about it because, I, and I encourage you, please, if you want some interesting prayer, just meditate on this vision. You can find it in chapter 4. Around God's throne are four living creatures resembling a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle in flight, all with eyes that look in all directions. And all around them, 24 enthroned and crowned elders dressed in white. And before the throne, seven torches of fire representing the seven spirits of God. And God's throne. God sat there on his throne on a sea of glass, like crystal, under a rainbow, the color of emerald. And God had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, which are red-hued stones. And be, beside him stood Jesus, the Lamb of God, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Does that not blow your mind? Is that not amazing? I mean, 
pray about that for a while. Allow yourself to think of a God red-hued like Carnelian and Jasper sitting on a sea of glass with an emerald rainbow. Imagine what it might be like to be one of those 24 angelic elders watching the, the four living beings in, in the shape of an eagle taking flight. Imagine, and, and can we imagine, is that sacrilegious? No. Do you know why? Because who's there with him? The martyrs. People. There in that place are the martyrs dressed in white. Not outside the throne room. They're right there. In the midst. Terrifying? Apparently not. This is one of the great mysteries because before this throne, the most terrible evil will perish in an instant while the most vulnerable child will flourish in his presence. Those who were furthest from earthly power will be closest to the very source of all authority, which is revealed in the gentlest touch, the most ennobling gaze, the most tender guidance to all that gives life. Those who were ashamed are now clothed in the dignity of white robes, washed in the atonement of Jesus' sacrifice for sin. Those who lost everything will now wave palm branches of victory. Those who were slaves to the earthly powers and slaves to sin, as Paul says, will serve the Lord in perfect freedom. They will dwell in the temple, the location of God's presence, and there they will be sheltered which, those of you who know the biblical language, is an allusion to the Shekinah glory, the tenting glory that was in the tabernacle. That's the throne room of God. Note how the poem in verse 17 recalls the suffering, the hunger, the thirst, the scorching heat, and the tears. Why mention those things at all? I mean, are the martyrs hoping to remember these things? Well, I think it's because they matter to those who experience them. They are the physical and emotional wounds of living here. We are embodied people. We carry within us the marks of our experience. We, we hold them close. Those we hold dear in our hearts, the abuse we've received, or perhaps have given and the guilt with which we are wrapped. They cry out for an answer, not for amnesia. What John reveals is that the answer is granted in the triumph of the new world which brings his people into his healing presence. That's the answer. That is God's world mission. It's to bring his people into his presence. On that day, God's in God's throne room, in that day, they will have a new kind of living being. They will be human beings. Isn't that something? There are no human beings in God's throne room until now. I think that's quite remarkable. Like John's community, we now stand in the middle of a very real, very difficult tension between the reign of God and the reign of the false powers. 
That's where we are in the story. The letters to the seven churches reveal how, which come just before this, and Steve spent some time preaching about those seven churches. Those letters to those seven churches reveal how that tension is experienced by followers of Jesus at that time. Some were tempted by Roman idolatry, which afforded them economic relief and social ease and sexual favors. Some were tempted by false teaching, which strayed from the gospel. Some were confronted by the horrible extremity of martyrdom. Whether it was temptation by an easier life or by the threat of death itself, John did not relieve attention. In fact, he sharpened attention. John saw that Jesus was the fulcrum. To quote Jesus himself, you cannot serve God and mammon or the allure of wealth. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. For those who deny the reign of Christ, judgment reigns instead. This is the fruition of the curse that comes through the promise of Abraham. But for those who place their trust in Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, the Sovereign, the one who sits upon the throne, the gift of eternal life prevails. That's the fruit of blessing. That's the tension that we live in. That's what I mean. Jesus sits atop it all, and that's the most important decision, the most important factor of World Mission Sunday is Jesus himself. It's the allegiance which we show to him, the trust that we place in him, the faith and confidence that we have in his sovereignty and his lordship, the affirmation that he alone, among all things, is the most real. It's his reality that illuminates what's unreal and sinful about our own world and also what ought to draw our attention in it. How do we embrace World Mission Sunday? We embrace Jesus, first of all. I think the first response should resemble the response of the angels and the martyrs. We should worship God and the Lamb. We are fruit before we are fruitful. We experience grace before we proclaim it. We are the fruits of God's world mission. We are among those blessed through Abraham. We are the results of mission that was initiated by the first Jewish believers and disciples when they went out from the real Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, which I think would include Annapolis. Whatever wisdom and discernment we have for expressing the grace, that grace, that missionary grace, whatever discernment we have about it will result from the depth of our experience of it. Silver and gold have I none, said Peter. But what I have, I give to you. Prayer, praise, worship, and singing infuse John's vision to inform our worship and unite us with that angelic, heavenly host of living beings that dwell in God's presence. We're to warm our hearts and engage our bodies and use our imaginations and lean on the liturgical riches that Scripture provides through, through um, its celebration of feast and festival and poetry and psalm, you'll find similar themes in Hebrews, which draw analogy between Israel's worship and our own. Remember, it's love we're after. 
And we can love, John says elsewhere, because God first loved us. And if we're called a martyrdom, and many in this world are, it will be, Paul says, as the fruit of faith and hope, and most greatly, love. Love is the proper origin of mission. So let's worship, first of all. Second of all, let's live in attention. We are fruit before we are fruitful, but we are to be fruitful. And that fruit, fruitfulness will mature in the soil of tension. Wherever there is tension between God's reign and Satan's rebellion, that's where mission occurs. Tension is not a call for avoidance, but for mission. How? Well, that's a big question, but let's just tease out a couple of points. One is through discernment. We Americans live in a dicey situation, and I'm not going to try and label or identify the manifestations of our own idolatry. That would be controversial, and I'm sure we can all bring to mind the things that we think belong in that complexity. I certainly don't want to talk about this close to Super Bowl Sunday. Maybe after that we can talk about it. <laughs> we are affluent. We're powerful by worldly standards. We're complex. We are more like Rome than like Jerusalem. Each of us should be praying for discernment, less critical of others and more reflective about how each of us are to live faithfully within our with our time, with our money, with our bodies, with our relationships, with our entertainment choices. Our wealth and our privileges and our positions are not to be gained by compromise and they are not to be withheld from others. What is compromise? That's gonna be for each one of us to answer. I ask myself that question every day. I don't always know how to answer, and I don't know, always know if I can. Am I collaborating in some great American wickedness? Probably. Am I innocent? No. Is that how God looks at me and my mission here? I'm sure it's not. <clears throat> this takes discernment and dialogue and a lot of grace. And so I'm just calling us to it. We must obey. What does Jesus say? He says that the Great Commission is to bring us to the obedience of faith. And so we can ask ourselves, what does Jesus say? What does he do? See how graciously and gracefully he serves the martyrs? He is both the lamb and the shepherd, the gift and the giver, the source of food and the guide to living water. Are we offering ourselves as soothers, as guides to the source of living water? Do we see those who suffering, those who suffer the way that Jesus sees them? Are they known to us? Are we ambassadors, as Paul says, of reconciliation? That is the reconciliation that the Messiah and only he can secure. We don't merely study Jesus. We trust and we follow him, watching and listening carefully learning to obey and to teach obedience to others. That's an essential part of our world mission. 
last point I'll, I'll raise here uh, for consideration is through solidarity and support of each other who are engaged in mission of any kind. Where are our brothers and sisters living fruitfully in the tension between the kingdoms? The examples here are too numerous to count. We pray for some of them in our prayers of the people. Ben Quashe, former bishop of the Diocese of Jos, archbishop. You can read about his stories all over uh, resources in the Anglican Church of North American websites, and there are really incredible interviews of uh, ben Quash and his wife Gloria on YouTube, um, uh, hosting uh, uh, dozens of, 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 of uh, childless uh, kids in, in an orphanage that they started, adopting many of them, um, uh, sustaining immense persecution from, uh, from uh, jihadist uh, Muslim uh, tribes who come in and, and slaughter whole villages. He's had whole parishes uh, wiped out. Uh, he and his wife, Gloria, were held at gunpoint. Um, Gloria was beaten, blind. Uh, she recovered herself. Um, and that is a remarkable story, which you can hear online, about how Gloria started uh, laughing in the recovery room. They are living in tension, and their people are living in tension, but not even drawing attention to themselves in it. It's just their environment. And uh, it's where they're learning to live. And we'll hear about them, and that's what, why we pray for them in our prayers. We support them with our finances. We join our intercession with theirs in our own times of prayer. And I hope that you can cultivate your own examples, both far away and both very near. People even in this congregation who are engaged in the tension between the conflict between God's kingdom and, the, uh, and those who uh, resist it. We sacrifice our positions, our possessions to supplement theirs, solidarity and support. Our time here is short and important. We will only see partly and we will only know in part, Paul says. Our work will never be finished or complete. The loose ends will never be fully tied. We will always have the poor among us, Jesus says. So much of what we are concerned about is beyond our control, but... We belong to God. We are his body. We are the apples of his eye and his emissaries. And we know that on that final day of judgment, there will be people from everywhere in that throne, both Jew and Gentile, the fruit of God's own world mission. And he has made his mission ours. May God help us to join with it with gratitude courage, and obedience. Amen. Amen. Amen.